0: It's an expression so common that maybe we've even said it this morning. It's something I've said. It's something I've heard. Maybe it's even something that, as I've indicated, we're feeling even now. Sometimes life just seems to give us more than we can handle. Too much to handle. Maybe it's stress. Maybe it's even good things like opportunity. And we began weighing that and considering that and even prayerfully putting that into the hands of our God. And as a result of that, we're just simply overwhelmed. I was talking with someone recently who described it as if they were just drowning. They were struggling with a particular temptation and they said, I just, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this. I don't know where to go. I don't, I don't know how to act. It's just more than I can bear. Too much to handle. It's amazing how God's Word makes promises that we often cite. And perhaps you're like me in that I've sometimes remembered those promises I'm thinking about one promise in particular that speaks to the challenge of discouragement or feeling overwhelmed. It's one of my favorite promises in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It's a promise that we're familiar with, and yet I think the bottom line of what Paul, the Spirit through Paul, was expressing on that occasion is that while temptation is real, it's not irresistible. Specifically in that text, Paul reminds us of God's faithfulness. He says God is faithful. Who will now allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. I've heard that verse and have cited that verse and have loved that verse for a long time, but in thinking about what's said there, I'd like for us to go to that passage. We're going to camp out with the exception of one verse later in the lesson the whole time this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at the first 13 verses of this chapter because. This is a promise that not only has power, it has a context. Paul's been talking about some of the things that the children of Israel experienced a long time ago, and he's wanting to reinforce that point, really three points. Isn't it great when the preacher begins the sermon with the main point? Somebody may get excited about lunch coming soon. I can't say that, but what I can say is that God is faithful. That's the first point this verse makes. Second, that sin can be resisted, and that third, God is present. That He desires that we be able to escape that, and He has afforded us that opportunity. I think sometimes when we read promises like this, it's tempting for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, to somehow develop this complex that suggests that somehow we're bigger than Satan, or that we can somehow overcome these things on our own. But if anything, the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, calls on us to trust in God, not in ourselves. To look at God as the provider of an opportunity to be pure, to be holy, to desire the good things. So notice how in this passage in particular, Paul draws us in to participate with Israel in the things that she's experienced. Some may think that when he says in verse 1, "...our fathers," describing the fact that our fathers were under the cloud, our fathers passed through the sea, that he was just talking about Jews." But we know enough about the Corinthian context to know that Jews and Gentiles were present in that particular church. And we can benefit from the fact that I think the main point being made here is that we all still participate in God's activity. The covenant that was made with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the better covenant, the writer of Hebrews describes that we are still participating in what it is that God desires to see lived out among his people. And so whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're living then or now, these were our fathers. But then notice how in this same passage, at least twice, it's brought up that these stories that we read about in the Old Testament, a number of these stories, especially that are referenced here at least from Exodus and Numbers, that these stories were written for our example. That's the language that's used in verse 6. It's used again in verse 11, where at least twice in this given context, we're told that these things happened, even bad things, even things that we would rather not remember, even moments in Israel's story where she failed miserably, that these things happened as examples for us, verse 6. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We may be living in a different time and experiencing different circumstances that the children of Israel did, or even the ancient Corinthians did, But trust me, we're living under the control of the same God in a world that is much like their world. Paul draws us in to participate in that. And it doesn't stop there. Notice in verses 7 through 10, he gives us four commands. And those commandments are tied directly to what it was Israel struggled with. He says in verse 7, Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. Verse 8, Don't act immorally, as some of them did. Verse 9, Thus not try the Lord as some of them did. Verse 10, don't grumble as some of them did. In other words, even though all Israel, from the very beginning of this chapter it's made clear, all Israel was blessed. Look at those key words. Look at the word all. How in the first four verses of this chapter it's used five times. And every time the word all is used in those verses it describes God's goodness. God's been good to all of us. We've all been blessed. Look at the language there. Twice in verse 1. Our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud? The cloud of God's protection. The cloud that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness. The cloud that made sure that they were safe, that they were preserved. They all safely passed through the sea. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, that's the language of verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink from the rock that he goes on here to describe as Jesus Christ. In other words, all Israel was blessed by God, but not all Israel made it to the land of promise. What's the key there? What's the difference? Staying with the language of these 11 verses, you see it in the articulation of those particular words. I mentioned the word all used five times in the first four verses. If we keep reading, notice in verse 5, most of them, he says, nevertheless, most of them with whom God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Okay, let's follow the logic, Paul. God's logic through Paul. Most were not obedient to God's instruction, but they were all blessed. God blessed everyone. Most were not obedient. And then as he goes back and talks about the imperatives of verses 7 through 10, we see on four occasions, if you just highlight the consistency here, the language of some of them. They didn't all commit the same sin. Some were immoral. Some tried God, some turned to idols, some tried to do it their way rather than God's way. They didn't all commit, but they were all blessed by the same God. Now again, it's easy to zoom in on the promise of verse 13 and just say, hey, God's faithful. He's going to provide a way of escape from temptation. But I think when we do that, we might miss out on the fuller context of what's being said. Not only God is faithful, God's demonstrated his faithfulness from the very beginning. He made a world that was perfect. Genesis 1.31, God saw that everything He made was very good. He put humanity in a perfect setting where He desired a relationship with Himself. He said, if you'll eat of the tree of life, you can dwell with Me. You can have life. You can live forever. But when faced with an opportunity by the tempter in Genesis 3 to partake of the fruit of the the tree of knowledge of good and evil and suddenly have their eyes opened, Satan says, you can be like God. You will not surely die. They bought the lie. And ever since that time, we've seen the reality of what it is that 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11 is ultimately summarizing. God's been good. God's been perfect. He's been holy. He's been faithful from the very beginning. All Israel experienced those blessings, yet most of them rebelled. Only a small remnant was preserved. Now, they all sinned, but we're talking about habitual sin. Habitual trust in the God that allowed them to enter into the land of promise after faithfully leading through the wilderness, faithfully crossing the Red Sea, giving them what it was that had been promised to Abraham long ago. God blessed all. Most were unfaithful. Some committed that sin and some committed this sin. And so at the conclusion, when we get to verse 12, after this walk through the Old Testament, where Paul demonstrates the consistency of God and the consistency of people. Summarized in six words. God is good, we're not. We see the conclusion of verse 12. Therefore, Corinthians, I'm talking to you, Paul says. As readers, here we are being challenged by the example of a faithful God and people who were continuously faced with a choice, allowed by their own free will to see God's grace and goodness and desire to respond to that. In verse 12, we read those words. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. It's possible to fall. It's possible to rebel against God even when we've been saved. It's possible to resist grace. It's possible to resist God's goodness. It's possible to deny the truth. It's possible to be in love with God today, but to allow our own pride and selfishness to get in the way, and as a result of that, to rebel against Him tomorrow. That's not what God desires. God desires that we all be saved. God desires that we all spend eternity with Him forever, but He's allowed us, by our own free will, That choice, And as we continue to look in the context of what's being said here, it's amazing to see the continuity of the word fall in verse 12. What does he mean, fall? Well, he's already used that word in verse 8 to describe how back in Numbers, 23,000 fell on the day that they acted immorally against God's will. That's the kind of fall he's talking about here. It's the same word. Destruction. Because of our rebellion. If we walk in the way we desire to walk, rather than in the way God desires for us to walk, even though He's blessed us, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We will face destruction. But if we trust, when temptation comes, and it's not a matter of if temptation will come, when temptation comes, what's being said is, okay, don't be surprised by that. We're not in a new situation. Whatever temptation we face, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, Whatever it is that we're struggling with, whatever opportunity Satan puts before us, it's not new. Paul says of the Corinthians, the Israelites had experienced the same thing. They'd experienced these same kinds of temptations. God had been good to them in the same way, yet they had been given the same opportunity, the same choice. Will I trust God or not? You know, I think sometimes we do well to avoid temptation, but in doing so, we may forget that every time we're tempted, it gives us an opportunity to glorify God. It gives us an opportunity to choose right. It gives us an opportunity to bring about the glorification of God because of His faithfulness, because of His presence. And so if we think about these words, it's clear to me, because of the language in the first half of of verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, this language is easy to overlook. But as Paul talks about this, he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. Even Satan's tricks. Even the things that we might think that because it's relatively new on the cultural scene, or it's being produced in a new means or a new medium, that somehow that's different. Ultimately, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life it's the same game that Satan's been playing from the very beginning. But rather than highlighting Satan's activity, Paul highlights God's activity. And that statement, God is faithful, is the key to the whole passage. He was faithful to Israel. He's now being faithful to the Corinthians. And God be praised, He's faithful to us today. These are not new challenges. Isn't it amazing when you think about a promise, like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, in its fuller context... This isn't just something that Paul stated by inspiration, looking forward to what these Corinthian Christians were going to experience. He's looking back. He's looking back at what the Israelites had experienced. We know from Paul's ability to recall his own walk, his own life, Paul's likely thinking about his own journey. How God had been faithful to him. Despite his struggles, despite his past, despite the opposition he was facing, from the false teaching Judaizers and others who wanted to see him destroyed, who would stone him and leave him for dead. God, through Paul, wasn't just saying, wow, you've got got a lot to look forward to. He's saying, I'm faithful. I'm the same God that blessed Israel. I'm the same God who's been present with you from the very beginning. I'm the God who knows that there's no new temptation. I'm the God who's with you even now. People want to talk about irresistible grace. I think irresistible temptations are just as dangerous. The idea that there's somehow something out there that's so big, I can't defeat it with God's help. That's what this verse is about. It's not intended to give us some Superman complex that makes us think that we can walk into any setting and face anything and be victorious because I'm some kind of John Wayne Christian. That's not what Paul's getting at here. It's not because of my strength or my faith. It's because of God's strength and God's faithfulness. God's the one who's present. God's the one who's provided the way of escape. God's the one who's told me that this is the same story, the same experience that Israel had of old. And the reason 23,000 fell was not because God predestined that the others live. It's not because somehow God hated the 23,000 bodies that were somehow laying in the wilderness because of their rebellion. It's because they made the choice to walk away from God in His love. They made the choice to do things their way rather than God's way. They made the choice to willfully rebel against the God who had been faithful to them from the very beginning. And so it's in light of that that Paul talks about how temptation can be resisted. We all are tempted, but we all don't have to respond to that temptation. We don't have to succumb to that pressure because God is faithful, He's present. I don't know exactly how this happens in every circumstance. But I know from the testimony of Scripture, I know from seeing God's hand in my life and in the life of others, that sometimes God chooses to remove us from from situations. And it may be that we make that choice. One of the greatest moments of Joseph's life was when he he chose to flee from Mrs. Potiphar. Now, he paid the consequence from an earthly perspective for that, but getting out of that situation was a great thing for Joseph. God might use our own free will to move us in that direction. But sometimes if we pray, I need to get out of this situation, we can be removed from the situation. Perhaps that's the way that a way of escape is provided for us. Many of us could talk about times in our lives where we were in a difficult circumstance, maybe a relationship or a work environment or some other setting, and somehow it just seemed that all of that went away. I'll give God the credit for that. But it may be that He also provides opportunities for us To be strengthened, to be counseled, to depend upon the shepherds of the church or other brothers and sisters, even professionals who can help us to walk through these difficult journeys that come when we have to stare the tempter in the face. And so as Paul talks about this, the very end of the verse, he says not only God is faithful, but He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Why are we able to endure it? Not because we're so strong and so smart and so capable and so experienced and we're just somehow above the law any time we think those thoughts. Go back to verse 12. Take heed lest we fall. It's not about our goodness. It's about our desire to trust in God's goodness. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13 in that model prayer where He petitions the Lord, lead us not into temptation, Deliver us from evil or the evil one, some translations say. What's he doing there? He wants to put his trust in the Father. That the Father will protect him. That the Father will guide him. The Father will bless him. James 1 makes it clear that temptation doesn't come from God. God can't be tempted and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Later in verse 17 of that same chapter, we find out that God isn't sending bad things upon us. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. But in that same setting, we find out that temptation, as with lust and a number of other struggles, come from within. They come from our own thoughts. They they take up residence within us. And we allow those things to eventually gain control. And we make the choice to walk according to our own will rather than God's will. And I think Paul's message this morning through Scripture is simply this. We're not the first people to struggle with that. That temptation's been around a long time. And those people who struggle with that of old, whether in Israel or in Corinth, trusted in the God who's faithful then and He's faithful now. The writer of Hebrews near the end of his letter in Hebrews thirteen eight says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm given hope that our God, the God who inspired Paul to write these words down, the God who blessed the remnant of Israel and allowed them to enter into the land of promise despite their own iniquity, that He's still present And the question for us then isn't, how can we avoid temptation? Now, there are ways that we perhaps can put ourselves in situations and surround ourselves with good influences, but ultimately, in this wicked world, Satan's going to find a way to tempt us. And when those times come, when those moments, those thoughts, those encounters come, the question that Paul was asking the Corinthians, as he's reflecting on the spiritual story of our ancestors, the story of Israel in the books of Exodus and Numbers, is will we allow, will we trust God, will we allow God's faithfulness to be demonstrated in the way that we walk with integrity and faithfulness even when we stumble being willing to repent and come back to His will because we do not have to fail. There's no bully that can take you in Christ Jesus unless you willfully allow that to become a bully. If you willfully allow that to become an addiction or an idol or an unconfessed struggle or sin, Something that just somehow has taken control of us and we think, I just can't help it. That's the voice of Satan, not the voice of God. Because God's voice in this very passage has said, I'm here to help you. It's not up to you. It's up to trusting in Me. Which means that you're willing to put your faith in what I've revealed. You're willing to surround yourself with men and women of integrity who are also walking in the light. You're willing to be accountable. You're you're willing to confront difficult sin and topics and issues that wreck families and that affect our culture but even more than that can cause us to stray from the truth and risk spending an eternity in the presence of God and here God pleads with us he says instead of trying to resist this on your own instead of trying to stand firm and suggest that you've got to be bigger and stronger and better and somehow you've got to fix this if you're a fixer like me listen God's the fixer he's faithful He desires that we put our trust in Him. He knows the game of temptation. He's providing ways of escape. And perhaps this morning is that way of escape. Perhaps the proclamation of God's Word right now is that opportunity. Perhaps it's a phone call or a friend or someone you can seek counsel from, confess sin to, an opportunity to say, this doesn't have to be in control of me. Despite what the world may say, despite what my conscience might say about the way this has taken over, God's bigger than that sin. He's bigger than that temptation. He's better than that excuse. Do I trust them or not? We act as if somehow our problems, we're the first people to ever experience this. And here God pleads with us with a perspective that sees all of human history, the whole story of God's scheme of redemption going back to the, the antiquity of ancient Israel, and he says, they in the wilderness struggle with what you're struggling with. The Corinthians, they're struggling with what you struggled with. God's faithful. Trust them, love them, confess His name. And rather than trying to be a superman, trust in a super God who is bigger and better and stronger than any of us will ever be. Are we accountable? Sure we are. Do we have free will to make choices? Of course we do. All of that's presumed in this text. But this isn't a passage about being stronger. It's a passage about recognizing God's strength. And our strength is found in God's strength. The fruit of the Spirit is found in God's presence. The ability to overcome and endure temptation is found. Rather than in trusting in ourselves, trusting in Him. It's too big to handle, sure, if I'm trying to do it by myself. And maybe I'm tired of trying to push uphill Uphold something that it's impossible for me to to defeat. But that temptation is not irresistible. It can be resisted. It can be overcome. That struggle is not as big as our God. Perhaps today's the day for change. For the first time, coming in faith and turning from sin and saying with my life, I want to live for Jesus. I want to use my mouth to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, and come in contact with the blood of His Son, Jesus, in baptism knowing that as I'm raised, a new creation added to the church, forgiven of sin, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't somehow mean that I'm not going to struggle anymore, but my struggles are different because I'm walking in faith. I'm trusting in His presence. I'm confessing that with my brothers and sisters, knowing that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. And if I'm willing to walk in faith, I'm going to be willing to share that struggle. And rather than using an excuse, it's too much to handle. I'll say, God, you can handle this. You're faithful. You're my God. I want to walk with you. Let's desire to walk with Him. And whether it's a private commitment or a public confession, don't allow those bullies that we keep hidden to be in control any longer. Our God's bigger than that struggle. We come. As together, we stand and sing. Living me low in the soul.